Welcome everybody to the Remote Real Estate Investor, a podcast on remote real estate investing. So there's a lot of information out there on COVID-19, and within this episode, we're going to aggregate and distill what we've been reading. Specifically, there's a report that Rustock put out, as well as a really informative report that Deutsche Bank put out. All right, let's do it. All right, guys, we are in, for some of us, week four now, or week three of quarantine starting to blend together. I'd love to hear, how are you guys doing? What is going on? It feels like week 37. <laughs> it does. I'm good. I'm, I'm in Oceano, California, just moved into my place out here. My wife and I are kind of hunkering down, so we're taking on some home improvement projects while we can't leave the home. So all things considered, not too bad. Staying healthy and the sun is shining and the it's nice blue sky so no complaints on my end you down in la emil yep still at home in la today was actually the first day in a while i'm an avid surfer michael you and i always talk about surfing but today was the first day in a while where the surf looked really awesome and i was like really sad looking at the surf cams and just not being able to go out there and i'm, uh, I'm also no. jealous of you that i don't have like i finished up a bunch of recent home projects and I don't have anything right now. I'm like, man, this would be the perfect time <laughs> to be doing stuff on the weekend. So do I have a television show for you for home and garden? There is never ending projects you can do a meal. <laughs> That's true. Come on. There, you can add some more into your queue. <laughs> um, Speaking of television shows, have you cat and kitties seen Tiger King? Oh man. My wife started watching that the other night and I was doing a little work on my laptop and I started kind of getting sucked into it. Oh my God. God, what a what an easy show to just get sucked into. It's so ridiculous. Binged it in a day and a half. It's so enthralling. <laughs> Tom, have you seen it? I have. It's what do they say? Like watching a car crash where like you want to look away. Yes. But you can't look away. Just laser beams into it. <laughs> That's great. But you, Tom, saw you recently set up a slack line in your on your patio. I did. Yeah, I did it as a way I thought this would be a fun mental break to get up and work on my balancing. But I'm finding out it's actually quite a workout. My legs feel like jello after trying to balance on it. But I've been data driven. I've been tracking my daily performance. And Pierre, our producer on the podcast is actually like a professional balancing. I think he was in Cirque du Soleil before. And so he's been giving me some lessons. And it's been a, a really fun way to get a little bit of a workout unexpectedly and keep myself busy. You don't want to gain the uh, quarantine 15, as they're calling it. <laughs> exactly. I went and checked out Pierre's slacklining on his Instagram account, and it is insane. He's like on one foot juggling like five balls, and I'm like, dude, this is this is wild. Yeah, the dude's an animal. Pierre, where's the craziest place that you have slacklined? The most epic slackline that I walked was over Yosemite Falls, I have to say. What? Wow. How high was that? Yosemite Falls, that line is 2,500 feet straight down. Did you have a net under you? Holy smokes. I was attached to the line. Okay. My heart is racing just listening to you say that. Yeah. How long is it, Pierre? It's 130 feet long. Oh, that's nuts. Did you juggle across it as well or did you just go straight? I walked that pretty early in my career, so it was a pretty tough line for me. I kind of freaked out. Wow. That's amazing. So now everyone knows that Pierre is the coolest out of all of us. No question. Yeah, easily. In one specific domain. 
<laughs> but at least he still says, um, so that's good. Makes me feel better yeah. about myself. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's get into the meat of the episode. So the way that we're going to structure this episode is we're going to talk about what we know, what we've learned over the past week since we did our last podcast. Specifically, we're going to talk about general updates of cases coming on more and in how the infection is spreading. Then we're going to talk about the federal government's response in the CARES Act. After that, we're going to touch on local and state government response, and then just touch on the economy in general, what we've seen. The next section is going to be on the specifically single family impact. Uh, talk about the differences and similarities between the 2008 crisis as well as the 2020 crisis, as well as some of the operational challenges, challenges that we are seeing. Um, lastly, we're going to touch on key consideration and some ideas around strategies of buying. I think there's some aspects of evaluating properties that are have always been important, but I would say are even a little bit more important now to think about. And then we're going to touch on our personal portfolios and, and what we're seeing over the past week. All right. So let's talk about what we've seen as it relates to cases. So looking at this report put out by Deutsche Bank from March 31st, as of that production, there was 823,479 total confirmed cases. And of those that look like to be 40,636 deaths, and that's worldwide. So we are rapidly approaching a million cases here throughout the world. And on top of that, there's been 174,019 total recoveries. And this is globally. Yeah, and it looks like in the U.S., we are the world leader, go us, in number of cases with 164,719. So that surpasses Italy, which is in second place at 101,739. Looking at infections internationally, U.S., of the larger countries that have been struck by this disease, we are still on the up-ramp. This is, a, again, according to John Hopkins' a study they put out on March 20th, 2020, where on the far right side of the curve that have worked through the infection is uh, China and South Korea and other the Southeast Asian countries. Kind of at the top of the peak right now is Italy, as well as Switzerland and Germany are, are heading towards the top of the infection rate and Germany close behind. I think so much of this is related to number of tests that have been put out. And according to that same report, there's only been in the tens of thousands of tests that have been conducted. And it looks like there was a breakdown by state, and this is as of March 26th. Let's see, the source on this is the state health agencies. New York was leading in tests with 6,277, followed behind by Washington at 4,500. And then last is Maryland at 112. So all the other states fall somewhere between those two with number of tests completed. Uh, and again, that's as of March 26th. Here in California, we've done 516 tests. Okay, so the CARES Act, the stimulus package for the CARES Act is in total 2.8 trillion. And the way that's cut up is 500 billion going to business, local government loans and financial assistance. Around 349 billion going to small business loans and grants. Another 292 billion going directly to families. 125 billion going to unemployment insurance expansion, 315 billion going to tax provisions, 352 going to employer payroll tax deferment, 
and 140 billion going to state and local corona relief fund. And then there's 340 billion set aside for emergency funding, things for hospitals, homeland security, education, stabilization, things like that. And so what most of us probably care about is what is the individual implications for this? So the key provisions for individuals under the CARES Act, so for unemployment, getting an additional 600 per week for unemployment insurance for up to 16 weeks. There's also direct tax rebates. So an immediately refundable credit of $1,200 uh, if, if you're filing single, $2,400 if you're a married couple filing jointly, plus $500 per child. That's all subject to some income limitations that I believe the government's still working through. There's also student loan provisions in there as well. Payments on federal student loans suspended through September 30th of this year with no interest accruing during that period. So people with student loans getting some relief. There's also some relief for consumer credit. So it covers the period from January 31st of this year to the later of 120 days of enactment or 120 days after the national emergency ends. And accommodations are being made by creditors will not impact reporting on that consumer account. So if people are late, it won't be a hit on your credit score. And then lastly, on foreclosures, mortgage, and eviction protection, which is probably the most relevant for people listening on this show, borrowers have the right to request 360 days forbearance on any federally backed mortgage loan. So 180 days plus one 180-day renewal. During that forbearance period, there's no interest, fees, or penalties that will accrue. And servicers must grant forbearance even if borrower is already delinquent with no documentation required other than a borrower attesting to financial hardship. So those are the big impacts for individuals under the CARES Act. Anything else you guys want to add on there? I think it's really important to highlight that this forbearance is not a get out of jail free card. The interest is still due. The principal is still due. It's just a timeout, so to speak, of making payments. So if you don't make payments for a year and you have a 30-year mortgage, that means it's actually going to take you 31 years to pay off the entirety of it because they're just going to tack it on to the end. Yeah. And so I actually inquired with one of my lenders about forbearance and my lender actually said that, you know, if you're granted, let's say a three-month forbearance period, it's actually the entire amount was due at the end of three months. I don't know if a lot of other banks are doing that. To me, that's almost worse if you get a, a holiday for three months and then you owe three months worth of mortgage and, and everything all at once. But I think oh, that's the, horrible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, speaking to your point about, you know, how helpful this is, it's unless the economy is going to turn over, like in that time period, if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, and I have all of that due in three months, it's still going to be quite a crunch. Yeah, exactly. That'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. So yeah, for anyone listening, ask about different forbearance options if that's something that you need and chat with your lender and make sure to tell them what it is that you need and hopefully they're willing to work with you because no one can help you if you don't ask for it. Yeah, that main takeaway is call your bank and actually ask them about this. See if it's tacked on to the end like Michael had mentioned or is it due at the end of the forbearance period? Because I think... My thought was it'll just get tacked onto the end, but that's not how my lender was actually setting it up. So definitely just reach out to your lenders and, and inquire about that. 
And what I've heard as well is it's not consistent in the way that the banks are evaluating requests or the way that they are making payment due. So it's not cookie cutter. I don't think they were given a ton of guidance on managing this forbearance process. So again, yeah, to, back to the, the key point, talk to your lender. Excellent. Let's jump into local and state government response. So, you know, one of the key levers that's been put into place is shelter in place. And it's shown statistically to make a really big difference with regards to flattening the infection rate. So different levers that state and local government have used is bar and restaurant limits, as well as banning large gathering. Other states have implemented non-essential business closures. States typically on the West Coast and the Northeast have implemented these. And I'm sure you know, if you live in an area that has experienced this, another leveler that uh, states have used is state mandated school closures. And kind of funny, I'm looking at this map right now and every state has state mandated school closures except for California and it looks for Nebraska. And this is set on, this was made on March 30th. So I'm not sure if that has been updated yet. Yeah, both my in-laws are educators, and they've been told that their schools will not be reopening for this year. Yeah, I think we heard that, I think, like a day or two ago. I think Gavin Newsom, yeah, came out and said that, yeah, all California schools are going to be closed indefinitely. My mother-in-law is a third-grade student teacher, and it's funny thinking about they're all getting into Zoom calls and meeting online. It's got to be kind of a funny scene. A bunch of kids on Zoom? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. My mother-in-law is a kindergarten teacher, and so trying to get kids to pay attention is really difficult. Oh, man. There was also a slide in this deck that I really liked showing the people who filed for unemployment insurance in the week of March 21st. So it had it broken down by states. And this is a percentage of the labor force submitting unemployment insurance claims. And the top three were Nevada, which probably doesn't come as too much of a shock. Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. And the bottom three that I can see here are Georgia with 0.2%, Alabama with 0.4%, and then West Virginia and South Dakota were 0.4% as well. Utah's also at 0.1%. Oh, wow. I'm, yeah, I miss Utah. Utah's the best so far. The lowest, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's change gears. And what I think I've heard a lot of investors talk about is how is this similar and how is this different than the 2008 recession that we went through and what we're seeing right now? Yeah, I think a lot of people are thinking, especially real estate investors, are we going to see 2008 again where prices crater off precipitously? Like, are we going to see a huge drop in prices that quickly? So I think this will be a really interesting section for a lot of people. So I was reading up. I wanted to make sure I had my facts correct on this one. And so you guys feel free to hop in and correct me if I'm wrong. So the big reason in 2008 that housing went down so bad is because mainly a lot of these banks were giving subprime loans. And what a subprime loan means is whether you have, it's usually a borrower who doesn't have great credit and their income isn't great either. So it's rated as subprime instead of prime being a better lender. So the banks were making all these subprime loans, very low down payments, and the housing bubble burst off its peak. And so all these people started going into default. 
there were all these foreclosures, mortgage delinquencies. And so the housing market just started crashing. Yeah. You know, not only were the buyers not necessarily qualified, they had extremely high loan to value ratios. So where people were buying these houses with 5% down, 3% down, I've heard of, you know, as little as like 0% down. Uh, so these invest, these, excuse me, buyers, you know, were getting in way over their head where if there were any dip in the price, they would immediately be underwater, you know, and that's uh, an issue of just not tracking your loan to value. Right. And I think a lot of people were lured in by adjustable rate mortgages. And so their rate lock period, maybe it was three years, five years, whatever, flipped and their rates started going up, their payments went up. Now delinquencies go up and foreclosures and all of that as well. So let's talk about what was similar between what we're seeing right now and what happened in 2008. So there was significant dislocation in the stock market and the REIT in banking sectors. Oil prices were plummeting. Multifamily values were strong and occupancy was very high. Some of the differences between 2020 and 2008 is in 2008, as prices were falling, there was no backstop to buy these houses. It was only over time where institutional funding got involved and they were able to buy these houses and have the operational platform to manage them effectively. Then we saw a huge increase in price because they came in, recognized that the price of the homes were relatively low relative to what the rent was, and they were able to bolster up the prices. What's different in 20 and 20 is there isn't that time lag for institutions to come in and get up to speed with regards to managing and leasing these houses. So I find it unlikely for there to be a major cratering of the prices just because that time that it took for institutions to get up to speed, it's already been done. They have the platforms to do buying as well as home ownership. In 2008, because there were all these delinquencies and foreclosures, now the banks have all these homes on their balance sheet. And so they're willing to sell them quickly to get it off their balance sheet and sell it for you know less than an actual investor would just to, again, get it off their balance sheet. I think there's a lot of people out there maybe thinking, okay, we could see another 2008. I don't think you really start seeing that kind of drop in price until you see a lot of foreclosures and the, again, the bank wanting to get it off their balance sheet. I think that's, that's kind of one of the big differences here in my eyes. Another one too, is that we're seeing this unprecedented $2.8 trillion injection into the marketplace and a total freeze on evictions and foreclosures, which correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we had this type of freeze back in 08. No, no, we didn't. And also I think that buyers owner occupied, I think everybody is more cognizant on what their, their leverage is. So, you know, there hasn't been as many subprime loans like there was leading up to 2008. I think for these reasons, it's unlikely that we're going to see a huge price drop. You heard it here first folks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. We are very likely headed for a recession. And usually in recessions, home prices will soften. If there's less buyers, there's going to be less demand. And that means sellers will at some point, you know, if they're motivated, will have to come down in price. So I personally, this is just my personal view, I think we're going to see a change in price. I just don't think it's going to be the 2008 mega drop that some people are anticipating. What do you guys kind of see? I like that take. I agree. I, when I say, you know, prices are not going to drop, I, I meant relative to 2008, where it was 
literally like cut in half where it was more expensive to build a new house than it was to buy the house. I agree. I don't think prices are going to crater, but I think there is going to be some softening. That's a good way to put it. I also agree. I think that prices will soften a bit. And there's this kind of interesting dynamic that seems to be going on. And I feel like I got this vision in my head where people on a soccer field running back and forth between goals. And so they're running in fear because they think the economy is dropping out and the sky is falling. And then Fed lowers the interest rate and they realize, oh, well, I can get a really great interest rate on my house if I buy now. So they run back the other direction. And then they hear about the stock market continuing to plummet and like, oh, wait, maybe the economy is crashing. They run back in the direction. And so there's almost this ping ponging back and forth that I see going on. And some people say now is a terrible time to buy. And some people say now is a great time to buy. Let's go buy. So there's a lot of back and forth, I think, for a lot of people and, and not knowing there's a lot of volatility going on and people not knowing necessarily what the right thing to do is. So that was a really long winded way of saying, I agree. I think that, you know, prices might soften a little bit. In certain markets, they'll probably be a little bit insulated in other markets where we typically see less volatility, like in the South and in the Midwest, they probably won't be hit as hard as, as necessarily we might be on the coasts here on the West and East Coast. You actually brought up another important point that is uh, for demand is that we're in a very low interest rate environment right now. The, the Fed recently lowered rates to historic lows and it hasn't changed much. And so if they keep it low throughout this period, that also helps demand too if people can borrow money cheaply. There's a, a house, I don't know if you guys stock houses around where you live at. Oh, definitely. And there's this house. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Only in ski masks though, so. <laughs> That's right. I social distancing <laughs> stock them on watching on the MLS. And there's this house in this neighborhood that my wife and I, we like a lot. And we just did a big renovation. So we're more window shopping with not much intention to buy. But this house that we saw, it was on the market for you know a certain price, and then it went pending, and it now just got put back on the market. And we were expecting to see the price drop, but they actually raised the price by like fifteen uh, percent. And it's like I wonder what the scenario that happened there. But anyways, I mean, whatever the case, perhaps they have you know multiple offers that were well above the listing price, and the initial buyer had to back out. Not really a moral of the story, but there must still be some confidence out there within the, the local owner-occupied properties. I think that there is a relatively high degree of confidence, like Emil touched on with the low interest rate environment. And then with people changing their strategy just a little bit when it comes to buying and the purchase and sale agreement and just making sure to write into place more outs for themselves. So if they can't get an appraisal done or if the title officer can't close on time to make sure that they're giving themselves plenty of outs. And so really for a lot of buyers, it's quote unquote risk-free in that regard. What will really be indicative here is how widespread are job losses. You know, if people are filing for unemployment like they are and people like there's mass layoffs like we're seeing and it continues for a long period of time, then I think, yes, real estate will feel that a lot more as well. Last thing I wanted to add. All right, so next we're going to talk about some thoughts on strategies going into this new world that we have. And Emil, why don't you go ahead and lead us off? Yeah, so there's three key strategies here that we're going to talk about in terms of how do you go about mitigating risk in an environment like this. So the first one is talking about Section 8, which if you're unfamiliar, Section 8 homes are where the tenant is 
uh, lower income. And so the government basically helps pay their rent. So it's a much more secure, you know, you're going to get rent each month. It comes with some stronger stipulations, which we'll get into in a minute, but it's much more certain rent than a home that's not Section 8. So the second strategy we're going to be talking about is buying a tenant-occupied home. So if you buy a home that already has an, a tenant in place, what are some things you can do to ensure that you're inheriting a good tenant, especially in this environment? How can you try to vet to make sure that you're inheriting a good tenant? And then the last one is, I think now more than ever, it becomes even more important to screen for neighborhood. So we're going to be talking about neighborhood scores and finding the right neighborhood to invest in. All right, let's kick it off with section eight. So, Michael, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about section eight? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a handful of section eight tenants out awesome. in the Midwest, and they're you know the, like anything in dealing with people, there's there's good and there's bad and there's ugly and everything in between. So, I've gotten my section eight rents this month for April. It shows up like clockwork, and section eight's a little bit unique in that depending on how it's set up with the individual, like you said, Emil, it's just government subsidized housing. And so they either pay for part or all of their rent payments. So if the tenant has a portion of rent to make, then that comes from the tenant, obviously, and the, the remainder comes from the government direct. So with Section 8, there's a lot of, like you said, stipulations are, uh, surrounding it. And so you need to go through an annual review process in order to raise rent and you have to maintain the property in a nice fashion and you have to respond to maintenance requests in a timely manner. So there are all these things that, I don't know, I think you should be doing as a good landlord anyways, but there are requirements for Section 8. So if someone's looking at getting involved with Section 8 because it's a guaranteed rental income stream, now is not a bad time to entertain that idea, but just understand that there's a lot more strings attached than just getting guaranteed rent every month. You really need to understand how it works in your particular market. And for those distance investors, which I believe most of us are, you really need to chat with your property manager and make sure that they're well-versed in that and that that's something that they're capable of handling before just jumping in and saying, okay, great, I'm doing section eight now. Here, deal with it there's some the research that needs to go in on the front end. Yeah, that's key in vetting your property manager, just confirming that they have experience with it. Because ultimately, with a third party property manager, you're not going to need to be involved in, in all that extra overhead. But your property manager sure as heck will be. Michael, I have a question for you on Section 8. Yeah, shoot. Is Section 8 for is it zoning? So is it the property is Section 8 eligible? Or is it just the tenant? So you can have any type of home. And it's a Section 8 tenant that you're allowing. Yeah. So from my understanding, it can be both. You can have areas that are zoned for Section 8, but you can also have individual units or properties that are Section 8. So I've seen listings online that say whatever the listing is and then no Section 8 allowed. In my case, I've got a small apartment building. And so we've got Section 8 tenants within that building. I don't believe that we had to go get special designation to receive Section 8, we had a Section 8 tenant apply, and then Section 8 verified that that's an acceptable property. Got it. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Tom, what are your thoughts on buying a tenant-occupied property versus buying a vacant property? And what are some things that people should look out for? I think similar to your point that you know, regardless of the environment, there are some key things that you need to look at. And I would say they're extra important right now. 
So one of them is if you're in a transaction or going to be going into a transaction in the near future is looking at the payment history and get the most up-to-date payment history. Cause you know, it's one thing if they're making steady payment through March, February, you know, and through 2019, but knowing what you're getting into with, with clear eyes and a deal might even make sense if a tenant isn't falls onto hardship and isn't able to pay for a few months, but you want to know that going in. So making sure that you get the most recent payment history rent roll from that property that you're looking at. And the other important aspect is the applicant screening criteria. So making sure that there's a good ratio of income to debt. I think in even some types of screening, they may have like the type of job, um, if there's any kind of risk around, you know, not being able to work. But just like I said, going into it with all the information that uh, you can to make a good decision on if it's a good property for you. And Tom, how would someone go about getting that type of information? If I'm a buyer and I want to understand what the tenant screening process looks like for a property that I'm looking to purchase, who do I call? What questions do I ask? How, how do I do that? There could be a couple of places. I think this would be within the escrow period, being able to get that information on what the criteria was. The other piece with payment history, and this is something that what, that's cool that Roofstock does, is they actually have a diligence vault where they list a bunch of important information. If there was an inspection done on the property, if it's occupied, if what's the payment history of the property. Now, month to month, things can change. So a point that I want you, that everyone listening should take if they're buying a property is get the most up-to-date payment history. In addition to that, Tom, just to kind of highlight what you mentioned about getting the applicant screening criteria during the due diligence process, I would just call the property manager that currently manages the property and ask them that direct question of, hey, what kind of criteria did you use? What's your minimum acceptable tenant credit score and, and debt to income and all that kind of good stuff? Just so you have an understanding of what that tenant screening process looked like. Now, if it's not under professional management, you might have to chat with a mom and pop you know, management company or mom and pop owner and they might not have a real diligent screening process. So then you need to evaluate for yourself if you're okay proceeding, knowing that you have that tenant in place. Something else to consider too is going at the opposite end of the spectrum, buying a vacant property. Roofstock on a lot of properties has that roofstock guarantee, right? That's right. So if you're buying a vacant property and 45 days after it's rent ready, you still don't have a tenant, Roofstock will pay you 75% of that market rent. So that should help alleviate a lot of people's concerns over, oh my gosh, especially in these times, if I buy a vacant property, I'm going to have such a hard time placing a tenant. Well, you've got this kind of insurance safety net, so to speak, that's not going to leave you high and dry. This is a great transition into personal portfolios and, and what you guys are seeing with your own personal, because it, it's today when we're recording, it is Friday, April 3rd. So we've gone into the next month. So some of you may have heard from your property managers. So I had a property that was coming up where a tenant is going to be moving out in the pretty short future. And as a good property manager does, like mine does, is they start marketing before the tenant even moves out. And I just got notified that it's already leased. So it's going to be a super tight turn. I was kind of nervous on what the new rent was going to be. Were they marketing at the right amount going into this? But so far, those concerns have proved to be invalid in that they were able to fill this vacancy before it even got vacant. So I'm pretty excited about that and happy to announce that update. That's, That's great. great. Can I have your property manager's number? I want to hire him. <laughs> I'll 
I'll give some free marketing. It's uh, Excalibur Homes in, in Atlanta. I'm a fan of those guys. Awesome. Good, good for you guys. Emil, what have you been seeing, man? So for me, I got a rent deposit email today. So that started off my Friday really well. Still waiting on most of the others, but got my first one today. Actually, now that I think about it, I have one property manager that submits an email to me immediately when I get a rent payment. The other ones don't. They give me like a weekly update on if rent has been paid. So I'll have to wait till next week on the other ones. Or I can go check online. Maybe that's something for me to do this weekend. And then one of my properties also has a renewal coming up in two months. And my property manager, when the lease comes due, they go and do a property inspection to make sure that the tenant is taking care of the home, which I love. It's an added fee. It's I think $100, $150, but I don't mind paying it at all. I think it's so much better to know what's going on in your home than let's say you have a tenant for three, four years and you find out at the turn that all these things have been happening. You have a terrible tenant all, and you have no recourse at the end because they're leaving. So I love that they're doing that. So it's coming up in two months. I'm pretty confident they are going to be staying just given the environment. I don't think a lot of people are moving right now. It's really hard to go see places. So I'm confident that they're going to renew. That's pretty much it on my end in terms of updates on my portfolio. What about you, Michael? So I just finished up a big rehab on an eight unit that I've got. And thankfully, we're leasing those units out really quickly. I was really not expecting to see that. I was thinking kind of just like you said, Emil, people probably aren't moving. They're going to try to stay put for as long as they can. But I haven't seen that yet, which is great. And so I had another property that had a few vacancies, and those also have been leased up. And then one of those fell through because the person lost their job pretty recently. So we'll have a few vacancies still to fill. And then out in California, I got word that a few of my tenants are not able to pay rent this month and they're not sure when that's going to be able to get picked back up. So playing catch up on a few parts and full steam ahead on others. So I think it's going to be okay. Good to hear. I mean, not good to hear that some tenants aren't able to pay, but I think we mentioned on the last episode, you just have to take it in stride knowing these kinds of black swans that you can't prepare for are going to happen. And it's part of the reason we always tout having enough in reserves to weather these storms. A lot of investors who've been doing this for way longer than I, I try to learn from them. And the resounding message seems to be that the people who are in a place financially who put away and have a rainy day fund through reserves, those are the ones that are usually able to weather the storm and continue on and build a really nice portfolio over time. Yeah. So often it's this war of attrition. Who can hold out the longest is going to be victorious. And the more cash, the stronger cash position you have, the longer you're going to be able to hold out on that financial siege, if you will. Total. I don't know why I went with the Medieval Times reference there, but (laughs) that's what was speaking to me. All right, guys, that's our episode. We hope you enjoyed it. A great way to show your appreciation if you did enjoy it is to rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts uh, and subscribe. Um, If you have any questions or like to hear any specific type of content, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at tom at roofstock.com and happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing.